I'd like to welcome everybody to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and this is our special monthly episode called The Hanover House. And the design behind this was to continue our effort in thinking well, having serious thinking, promoting virtues like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism, but doing it in a context, uh, bringing in more local church pastors, and having more of a conversational style. This is a unique episode for us because previously we've just had a a couple of friends and we just kind of chatted amongst ourselves, but now we brought in a great expert in Dr. Sam Renahan uh, to continue our conversation. And we also have a new guest, Dr. Jesse Owens, who... Jesse, correct me if I'm wrong. Are you a, like an associate, assistant, or or full professor? What's what's your title now? Uh, at yeah, I was actually in the process of just signing uh, the contract for that. Let's see, I am um, assistant professor. So. Assistant professor. So newly minted assistant professor Jesse Owens, mm-hmm. which is really exciting to have him here. Congratulations on that. And then we've got the usual suspects and Jake Stone who I think is a crowd favorite. Everybody loves Jake. We just need to get him riled up, and that'll that'll draw the listens. And then Connor McMakin, who is a local church pastor up in Michigan. So we have quite the plethora of locations. What, Sam, you're in California. Jesse's in Nashville, which was a hotbed of controversy over the last couple weeks uh, from when we were recording this. And then, Jake, you're now in Louisville. And I'm over in North Carolina, so a cool crew here. But the topic we wanted to talk to Sam about and just have an interesting conversation on was related to institutions and Baptist life. So that's a pretty broad question. Institutions could mean a lot of things, uh, but I think we kind of want to talk about all of it. Sam, you did a Twitter thread, I don't know how long ago it was now, just talking about part of the reason that Baptists have struggled to have the context for being able to create serious academic theology uh, coming from our own tradition. And some of the reasons for that seem to be a lack of strong, healthy institutions that can support that um, beyond just the single local church um, that might be struggling to support one or two full-time pastors as it is. They don't have the budget or the space to create uh, opportunities for, for, Think, I mean, pastors and and for theologians to think well about our own tradition. So, I think this is going to be fun. So, Sam, maybe let's just start with historically. We can think particular Baptists or general Baptists in general. What did they historically seek to build when it comes to institutions? Is that just they think? It's just me and my local church. I'm not associated with anybody. Is there an associational body that's external to their local church that has some influence? Or are there other sorts of institutions such as I want to build an actual university or a college or a pastor's college, something like that? What, what's been the historical trajectory on that thinking? It's a very interesting question to me. Um, and in terms of institutions, historically speaking, what have the Baptists sought to establish and promote, um, we could we could give a lot of different answers to that question, um, as you just indicated in the way that you asked it. So just for context, I'm thinking primarily 17th century Baptists and then moving into the 18th century, though my knowledge begins to fade the further I get into the 18th century. And so from what I have seen in particular Baptist circles, you know, First London Confession, Second London Confession circles, the first thing that they 
that they tried to form and shape were associations of churches. They believed that churches should hold communion, uh, which is a, a formal relationship between between churches. And those churches that hold communion share, at least to some degree, a common faith. And so by forming associations of churches, usually in geographic areas, usually in, in local geographic areas, what happens is it connects multiple congregations who ought to have uh, at least some measure of trust in each other because you believe the same things, and it develops a, a relationship. You're, you're geographically uh, close enough to spend time with the other people or visit the other people, get them together. And so that communion of churches uh, as associations is really the first thing that the Baptists were seeking to establish and promote and build up in the 17th century. Um, how well did those work or how long did they last is is a case-by-case -case question, but they, they sought to build these associations. And if you look at, for example, 1675, there was a circular letter that was sent out by William Kiffin and some of the other London Baptists where they were inviting people to come from the countryside to London and to join together. And they they really they had a um, a priority for that meeting was to to try to establish a standing ministry. That's the type of language that they used. They they acknowledged we need training for ministers, um, and so they wanted to cooperate because the the power of multiple churches to train ministers would be stronger than the power of just one church. And so they want churches to be training ministers, but they want to cooperate in order to do this better. Um, and so in in fast forwarding to 1689, when a real general assembly can happen more openly and more freely, and when it did indeed happen, one of the things that they did there at that general assembly of an association of churches is they established a fund, a fund where um, not only could existing ministers be supported financially, but also they would dedicate funds for for promising men in those churches to receive an education um, or to, to advance in education because they wanted men to have knowledge of Greek and Hebrew if possible. They didn't, they didn't consider that absolutely necessary, but certainly very helpful. And so they, they were establishing financial resources, collective financial resources to promote uh, the training of gospel ministers in the particular Baptist churches in London and in the, the country around them. So you see them forming associations then you see that association forming financial assistance programs for standing pa for pastors and for uh, aspiring young men. Um, advancing in history a little bit as, you, as the 1689 association, I'm just calling it that, that's not the best term for it, but as that London association kind of decayed because of the hymn singing controversy and, and related issues, we see that something that replaced that association were more informal societies. So you get the Hanover Coffee House, uh, for which I believe this, this discussion is named. You get coffee house societies, um, which are, again, local pastors getting together in one place on a monthly basis or whatever they chose. And they, they were a formal society in the sense that they had a, a moderator and they had minutes and they kept records of their meetings and people would send them questions and they would give their answers just as, you know, their advice as a society. So you see societies, um, there was the Baptist Board Fund or the particular Baptist Fund, which again sought to be a collective financial 
assistance program, even when the associations had broken down to some degree, um, there was still cooperation for financial assistance for, for aspiring ministers. And then, of course, you also get the, the Bristol Academy, um, where the particular Baptists really begin to, to formally train their men in a, in a school. Now, dissenting academies in general were already a thing. Um, particular Baptists would go to dissenting academies and learn from Congregationalists. And so there's a, a good history of dissenting academies. And so the Bristol Academy would be just one instance of a particular Baptist kind in a larger context of dissenting academies. And that, of course, is due to the fact that you, the particular Baptists can't really go to um, Oxford or to Cambridge to receive a university education for the purpose of the ministry, so they have to establish their own schools to accomplish the same thing. And dissenting academies often really started out with basically just one well-educated tutor who collected a group of students around him himself and kind of had his own school. Uh, but the, the Bristol Academy grew into a, a more serious college with a, a larger faculty and ability to, to train people, and it's still around to this day, which is great. So what kind of institutions did the particular Baptists build? They built associations of churches. Those associations cooperated to financially assist people. When those associations crumbled to some degree, there were still societies. There were still uh, funds, the particular Baptist fund. We, we didn't, I didn't even mention missionary societies later in the 18th century, uh, as well as dissenting academies in general and a particular Baptist academy in particular. Um, all, all of those things are, are clearly, just as a matter of historical record, something we consistently see the Baptists trying to keep up. Okay, well, let's raise an association here, or let's, let's raise financial assistance for, for this area, or let's establish a society, or let's get an academy going, because they want to, they want to see their churches perpetuate and, and pass the baton from one generation to the next, and they know that training ministers is an extremely important part of of accomplishing that that's good stuff i i mean i know jesse's on the podcast now and you you're at Wel welch college which you guys are a distinctively baptist college right yeah <clears throat> we're actually a part of the uh, national association of free will baptists yeah okay perfect so i, I mean it, it seems that there is a contemporary desire to create these um sorts of either, I guess, associations or actual institutions such as colleges, universities to train people. But at least from my experience, I look at the literature that's out there that's distinctively Baptist from an academic standpoint of thinking about whether it's covenant theology, whether it's um, the doctrine of God or, or anything like that. I don't see a lot of that specific work in being generated from strong Baptist institutions. So I guess I'm thinking less association here and more like college university level. Why is it that there, it seems that most, I mean, I, I don't know of any distinctively reformed Baptist colleges or universities. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, I know Jesse, how many schools like yours are there in the country? Do you know off the top of your head? I don't. Um, I mean, I would assume there are quite a few uh, Bible colleges associated with certain Baptist denominations and yeah. 
liberal arts colleges that are rooted in Baptist traditions or denominations. Yeah. I guess I know a lot of, of Bible colleges, but it seems like a lot, depending on it, what it is, it's, it's loosely, you know, non-denominational, interdenominational, something like that, which I guess if you want to make fun of, you know, make a funny meme, you know, if you say non-denominational, Oh, yep. That's the Baptist church. We're here. Um, <laughs> but, why is it, Sam, that there just doesn't seem to be like strong Baptist systematic theology, strong Baptist things of that type of persuasion? Because when I think systematic theology, the great ones, think of somebody like Herman Bovink, you know, you've got, um, who, who else is on my shelf? Um, you got William Shedd, you've, you've got all, all these other ones that are standing the test of time. I, I don't... I mean, I guess is Wayne Grudem a Baptist? He he's got his you know best selling systematic theology. Where are the Baptists? I guess is my question. Do you do you mean more specifically where are more of the 1689 flavor Baptists? Because I mean, if we talk about Baptist schools, all of the Southern Baptist colleges and universities yeah. have a, a massive presence and output. So I, I imagine you're thinking a little bit more narrowly when you use the word Baptist because. If we use the the word broadly, then the Baptists have a massive academic presence in in the United States from that perspective. So, are you being more hmm. specific? Is that what you mean? You know, that's a good question. Well, I mean, let's go down that route. Let's let's just think those who are specifically wanting to confess the Second London Confession of Faith and and, and like that. It's because it seems that that's a growing trend uh, among a lot of Baptists. They they want to they want to confess that they want to be a member of a church that confesses that. But I, I mean, where are those distinctively, distinctively Second London type of resources being promoted besides something like RBS? Well, one of the, in my opinion, one of the reasons why it's not easy to find the kind of systematic theology resources from a 1689 perspective, whether in the 17th century or really to this day, one of the reasons is that the overlap in theology between a 1689 Baptist and, let's say, a Westminster Confession Presbyterian, well, an American Westminster Confession Presbyterian, the, the overlap theologically is, is considerable. It's very high. And so in the 17th century, the particular Baptist ministers, many of them were bivocational, and they're busy doing a normal job as well as trying to be gospel ministers. They don't have time uh, they don't have the resources to be writing systematic theologies, and it's it's unnecessary to a large to the degree that your theology overlaps with the Westminster Confession. To that degree, it's not necessary to write a systematic theology. And so you may say, okay, we have a a, a 10, 15, or 20 percent need to write a systematic theology, uh, which isn't very much. It certainly doesn't merit you know quitting your job um, to to do that and. So what you do see them writing in the in the 17th century is more polemical works, the things where they do disagree either with paedobaptists or with others, Quakers, or even among themselves. So there's a good amount of polemic literature, which is short and obviously polemical. And then they, they publish pastoral literature, which often tends to be their sermons, which someone said, that was really encouraging. Why don't you, why don't you publish that? And so you read a, a thousand prefaces that all say, I was never going to publish this. I wouldn't dare to publish this, but someone told me I should. <laughs> and so they publish polemical works and pastoral works, which makes sense. They publish their sermons, and they write against issues that they find in their day, in their context. 
And I, I think that that has largely continued to be the case. This is a generalization where more the, the more 1689 flavor of, of Baptists, they, they can read a Turretin or a Bavink or a Burkhoff or, and, and say, you know, there's enough here that why rewrite 20 chapters when I only need to rewrite two, you know, um, th that kind of thing. Let's just publish a work on baptism. Let's just publish a work on ecclesiology. And there we go. Um, we don't need to do any more. So I think that's part of the, the reason why there isn't as much systematic theology literature from a 1689 perspective, either then or now and, and in between. Yeah. Uh, another reason is what we were discussing previously is a lack of institutional foundation for that kind of work to be done, like I said, in the 17th century of bivocational ministers uh, who don't have the time to sit down and do the work that it takes to produce something like a systematic theology. If you're going to do that, even if you did it poorly, it would still take a long time and a lot of work to put out even a poor systematic theology. But to do it do it well would would obviously take even more time because you're reading more, you're you're examining your arguments even more. So as I look at 1689 churches of a variety of flavors, because there's there's all sorts of different flavors within the 1689 camp, as I look at them, I see a lot of ministers who they just wouldn't have time. And the schools that we do have are, are often centered around one or two men uh, who have just enough time to be administrators and professors of multiple classes which means that just to take care of the schools that they're running, they don't have time uh, to, to publish a, a long work about systematic theology. So there would need to be, uh, for the production of those books, there would need to be all these preceding structural contextual foundations that would allow someone to have the time uh, to, to do that kind of work. And so institutions, I think, are, are a great way to, to do so. In terms of, you know, you kind of need the system to produce the systematic theology, and we just haven't had a very—we, as in 1689 Baptists, we haven't had a very strong system, in my opinion. Uh, we've we've fractured yeah. over this or that, and struggled to really keep a, a strong association going uh, long enough to to get off the ground in, in some of these ways. So, but that that's just my perspective and opinion um that that's how i see it does that mean that that is accurate in every way Cert certainly not but that at least yeah. makes some sense to me as to why this why we see the situation we see then or now now jesse i'm not as familiar with free will baptist general baptist history um i don't know if you know off the top of your head i mean do you think some of the struggles that some of the more, I guess, 1689 type Baptists have had in institution building is mapped similarly into your own context? Yeah, I mean, I think there would be a lot of similarities in the 17th century, but then even today with what Sam has said. Um, <clears throat> I think vocationally, as far as typically being bivocational, so not having the time or the ability to produce these types of works. Um, another thing he mentioned, the lack of education, I think certainly factors into that. Um, not having access to Oxford or um, or Cambridge um, certainly plays into that. I, I do wonder about the the Presbyterianism thing. Certainly, I'm I'm thinking more about the General Baptist tradition. So um, on on a lot of doctrines, a, a little bit less overlap in some areas for, for sure. Um, 
I do think that the financial part and the educational part are a, a huge part of that. Because one of the things is because I would dare to say it's not just overlap or primarily overlap, um, because I would assume you have um, people within the Reformed tradition or the Calvinist uh, tradition, if you want to say that, um, who are writing systematic theologies. And it's not, um, you know, they're, they're not just concerned about overlap. So I would think the education and the finances would probably be the biggest part of that. Um, I tend to think of Thomas Grantham's Christianismus Primitivus as a good example of an early Baptist systematic theology is pretty close, I think, to to a systematic theology. Uh, but in the general Baptist tradition, other than that, um, there's not a whole lot in the 17th century to point to. Um, so, so, anyways, all that to say, I, I, I would affirm a lot of, of what Sam has said. Interesting, Jake. Uh, you're a Baptist history nerd, and now a Baptist historian in training. Uh, newly minted MDiv student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, from which. Connor, I, and Jesse have graduated. So I guess now we have, what, how many are, four of us are Southern, or soon to be Southern grad for Jake eventually. Sam, you, sorry you missed the party. <laughs> I had to come in and clean up for y'all. So that's why I'm here. So, <laughs> so true. So uh, D- Jake, Connor, do you have any thoughts on, on just Baptist institu- institutions uh, so far a- as we've discussed well, I, I kind of want to ask Sam a question along the lines and, and kind of get maybe I think to the a little bit to the maybe the heart of some of these issues is one of the great challenges that we have as Baptists is that we are so fearful of any uh, hint of hierarchy or centralization that we so quickly abandon the notion of interdependence among the churches in the name of independence and autonomy of my local church, that we're so quick to defend this is my church and we're going to do things our way. And any notion of other churches, us having really meaningful, formal communion, we just we we resent almost the idea of another church or pastor giving us real counsel or real help or even maybe a real rebuke in some way. Because reading stuff from the 17th century I mean, it really seems like that those early men saw just as a Christian needed to be a part of a local church, that a local church then needed to be a part of some type of association or communion. And yet it doesn't seem very long afterwards that we're we're quick to just assert our independence. And so there's it's always like there's this fear of any type of centralization. And you can't, I don't know if you can really build institutions unless you've got a real structure of formal communion with churches. I mean, one church that has lots of wealth and lots of people can do something like that. But in our history, we haven't had very many churches like that. We're usually more small and blue collar. So it takes a group working together. Would you say that somewhat maybe misunderstanding a part of Baptist polity as far as local church autonomy has really damaged the ability to build long-term institutions? Unquestionably, yes. Um, But we have to not fall into an opposite ditch. So unquestionably, yes, uh, Baptist. A a hyper-independence has been... um, has been cancerous. Uh, it, it's been almost a built-in defect, a, a time bomb in almost any Baptist 
communal endeavor, and by communal, I just mean communion of churches, where we have united churches who are just waiting to disunite in a sense. You know, it seems like no one's going in with that intention. But the, that hyper-independence, it, it, it's almost like how in America today divorce is on demand. Like, we're going we're gonna to get married. We're formally married. But I can divorce you any day I want, you know? And, and so Baptists also, it's like, yeah, sure, let's associate. But we're out the second we don't like it. You know, we're gone because we're the independent local Baptist church. And so if there was a better understanding of the nature of authority and accountability in associations, uh, I think that that would go a long way to help. In my own personal experience with associations, uh, I have seen this be a, in some ways, the problem that, in my opinion, prevented us from keeping something that that ended up breaking apart. We could have kept this, I believe, if we had had a better understanding of of authority. So to be a little bit more specific, what I mean is, I believe that that Baptists need a better understanding of the keys of the kingdom. And the relationship between a local church and an association is about the keys, where only the local church can exercise the keys. The association cannot exercise the keys. And by keys, I mean matters of discipline and matters of uh, membership and matters of uh, word and sacrament. So the association can't administer sacraments. The association can't administer discipline. The association can't say, this person's in your church, this person's out of your church. Th those are keys issues. The power of, of Christ exercised in the church is exercised only by the local church. But then an association can be brought an issue, and the association can, as a, as a council or as a general assembly, can say, we, we've been, this has been brought to our attention our judgment on this matter is so-and-so was wrong, morally or doctrinally, and here's our advice. And and so they can, in a sense, sit over a case because it's been brought to them, uh, but they can't enforce discipline. They can't force a member out, um, you know, so people don't realize that. They think that any oversight, any accountability in an association automatically, that's Presbyterianism. No, no, no. As long as the association does not exercise the power of the keys, you're good. You're safe. And in fact, you want an association that will care for you and, and give you accountability so long as it's not exercising the keys. The association doesn't ordain officers. Um, that, that's another one I failed to mention. Um, and so the association cannot unordain an officer. You know, it, it, it can't do any of those things, but it can, it can render a judgment on doctrinal or moral matters. And, and they have in, in the history of Baptist associations many times. So it would not be something new. But in my experience, many Baptists have said, well, only, only my local church can tell me if I'm wrong in this. It's like, okay, then why are you in this association? You know, If we can't hold people accountable uh, in, in an association, then what's the point? So to answer your question, has, has hyper-independence been a rot in Baptist associationalism? Yes, absolutely. But here's the, here's the other ditch I want to avoid, and I apologize for, for t talking so long on some of these things. The other ditch is to think that if only we get our, our doctrine of associationalism or ecclesiology just right, everything will work itself out. That, that's not true either. Um, because in the 17th century, there's no golden age. In the 17th century, you have, uh, a, I believe, a better understanding of the power of the keys in a local congregation and the relation of an association to it. But they still were at each other's throats about hymn singing and such things. And so that, that's one thing. It, 
I tell people associations are part people, part paper. You need to have a good confession, a good constitution. That's the paper. But you need to have good people who trust each other and will be patient and work with each other. And so even if you have everything right on paper, confession and constitution, you still need men who are willing and patient to, to work through things and humble uh, to work through things. Um, I've seen a, a case in the, seventh, in the 18th century, early 18th century, where three particular Baptist churches – were meeting in the same building. Like, are you kidding me? That's insane. Become the same church, you know? <laughs> Unite, coalesce. Why, why would you have three? I get sad when I see two churches next to each other in a town. They're usually of different denominations, of course. And I think, oh, that's so sad. That's such a bad image right there. Two churches literally next to each other. Well, can you imagine three particular Baptist churches in the same building on a Sunday? That that's in that's out of control, uh, but but even before that, if you if you were at the Devonshire Square Church under Kiffin and other men there, all you have to do is cross the street, walk less than five minutes, and you're at the Petty France Church. So one thing we have to remember is that when the particular Baptists in London are thinking association, it's kind of easy for them when their churches are five minutes walking distance from each other. Yeah, let's get together, let's cooperate. Because we're right here in our each in each other's backyards, it's difficult to do in 2021 America or 2021 globally speaking, when it takes plane tickets or our our car rides to to get places. And if you look at the 1689 GA, you know tons of messengers show up. But each year after that, you see the the narrative saying when we really encourage the brethren in the country to make the trip you know we we will pay for your expenses don't worry about expense but please make the trip uh, down to london but if people aren't motivated to make that trip because they don't have confidence in the association it it will fall apart so there's all these practical considerations that have to be brought in and so just getting your doctrine right uh, on a, on associationalism or ecclesiology is not going to guarantee this foundation that will then produce institutions. It, it it takes, in my opinion, ultimately what it takes is men like you and and me and other ministers or whoever's ministers here in this chat. It, it takes serious, godly, humble, patient men who will do the work. Associations will not work for themselves. Associations are only what we do. Just like your marriage is not something that's going on its own. Your marriage is the way you treat your wife and the way your wife treats you. That's your marriage. So also a Baptist association or any association, all it is is the things we do together. This is what it is. And so if if men are not committed to say, I'm invested in in the churches, then it's not going to get anywhere. And, and that brings up something that I, I think is really important. If we say, you know, what are the most important aspects of, of institutions for the spread and health of modern Reformed Baptists? Like, what's most important for developing this culture and this health? I think it's that Baptists have to have a, a vision that's larger than themselves. Um, if it's like one man's vision for the association or one man's vision for this, then you get you know, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos type type situations, and those things rise and fall with the man. But if we're committed to something bigger than ourselves, something greater than ourselves, then we're cooperating for a common goal uh, that isn't about me, and it's not about you, and then I'm not possessive and defensive about it, and you're not possessive and defensive about it. Well, it's got to be my way. No. And, and ideally, that's 
that's where the, the paper half of it comes into view, where a good constitution and a good confession says this is what's in common independent of each person. Uh, this is what we believe in common. This is the way that we run things. Uh, so a, a good constitution and confession are necessary for something greater than the people, but the people have to be invested and involved uh, to work in this association and, and put it all together. And sadly, you know, to our own shame, uh, 1689 Baptists just have not been able to keep that going uh, as as often or for as long as as they ought to, considering our commitments as as Reformed Baptists, but it doesn't change the fact that we we need we need that, uh, and we suffer for for a lack of it. So, I think four of us, except you, Sam, are pro- members of the SBC. Jesse, you're SBC, right? No, no. you're not SBC, man. Why know. did I think you were SBC? I don't know. You're, are you regretting let, letting me on here? No, I'm not. I, I have <laughs> not either. No, no, not at all. I guess just in my in my puny little head, you're at Southern, so I'm assuming uh, making assumptions. But you know what assuming does. So here here I am. Uh, that's so we've got three of us who are SBC, and I guess four of us who have been part. Uh, Connor, you're not SBC either. Okay, no, I whatever. Got out when I could. Uh, no, just kidding. We, we, we love the SBC. And, and technically, I won't be for much longer either. So, uh, Okay, uh, well, I guess, well, I mean, I'm a member of an SBC church. I guess I'm the only one here that's a member of an SBC church. Wow. Um, that, that It is what it is. The SBC does seem to have a pretty strong institutional structure, despite having uh, some, you know, serious anti-establishment, anti-elitist, anti-academic ivory tower type intuitions and a significant population of it. And I'm wondering, Sam, is there a point at which you like, you you think institution building hits a tipping point where once you've been around long enough and you've built a large enough endowment or you've had a, the association has been in existence for long enough that the, it can withstand more um, contrarian thinking. It can withstand more, uh, trials and tribulations, whereas, you know, if it's only been going for 10 to 15, 20, 25 years and still somewhat relatively small for whatever reason, it's it's much more, uh, I guess, it has a lot more potential to, to eventually die or to, to dwindle into non-existence. Because I think the, when I look at the SBC, I mean, you've got completely opposite ends of the spectrum on pretty much every issue you could think of, uh, whether that's doctrine, theology, politics, whatever it is, but they're all centered on this. Well, I think most of them are centered on this. We have this mission that we want to accomplish, and we want to pool our money together to train ministers and to send missionaries. And so we're going to stick in this thing. Even if I hate my left hand, I'm going to stick in it because I like the institutional power this offers that I can't find somewhere else. So is is that just a matter of you think if, if we could build strong institutions once they hit a point, they are much safer than they would be previously? And is that when I think maybe 1689 Baptists have, have none of their institutions ever hit that, that point where they have the wherewithal to continue on despite factions and, and disagreements? I'm not sure how to answer that question because I feel like any anything could be disproved anecdotally. Uh, and what, what I mean is, if you think about Spurgeon's church, you'd think, 
look, this church has grown to be massive. Surely it will perpetuate itself. And then soon after the man dies, the church dwindles to almost nothing. Uh, and only with God's blessing on Peter Master's ministry has it grown into a flourishing church again. But when he, he took over, it was a handful of people. So the size of it, I don't think, can be a guarantee. But at the same time, institutional size can certainly be something that helps it to perpetuate, uh, especially financially speaking, if there is wisdom and, and good stewardship. So, you know, I guess what we'd say, like, can we graph um, – can we can we graph like okay there's this steep incline to get to start but then at some point it, it plateaus to some degree or it levels off like where is that point it's hard to get it started but if you if you go long enough it will it will flatten out to a degree where would that be i have not really thought about that question i'm not sure how to answer it but my my gut reaction would be this if you can produce if whatever group this is that we're graphing can produce serious literature, I think that might be one of – certainly you need finances no matter what. You have to have them. But if you can produce solid literature, it, it creates something that anyone in any generation can connect to and keep going. So we continue to confess a document edited and published in 1677. Th that book that they put out continues to be this self-perpetuating thing. Uh, and just like the body of Reformed literature in the 16th and 17th centuries, we still read uh, the scholastic works of the 16th century, and we still read the, the devotional works of Puritans in the 17th century. That body of literature has continued to, to convince people of the truths. Yes, this is what the scriptures teach. Yes. And so I believe that if a, if a, a communion of churches – is going to perpetuate itself, it needs to produce a body of literature that convinces people to confess the faith in this way. This is the most faithful expression of the scripture's teaching, and it, it builds more churches, it builds, it trains more ministers. So I, I think you need to have uh, literature that stands the test of time, and again, is not idiosyncratic, you know, so-and-so's strange take, so-and-so's strange take. That's hard to avoid. Uh, it, it really is. Um, I mean, when I think 1689 literature, there's so many tiny, you know, unique idiosyncratic works out there. And I guess, I, I mean, I don't know exactly why that is. I mean, I've got guesses based on our conversation and just my own intuitions. Uh, but I, I was talking, who was it? I think Jordan Senecal, and he said... <laughs> something I thought that was funny, but has a grain of truth in it. He was like, Baptist congregationalism and radical autonomy is the enemy of scholarship. Now, I, I don't think he means truly the, a actual Baptist congregationalism, but that hyper uh, independence that we talked about, where it's an overcorrection, where it's almost, uh, I've imbibed the American dream to, to too much of a degree, to where anybody who tells me anything about my life, it's, it's hands off. So uh, as I want to produce serious literature like that, I think all of us here want to see more serious literature, more serious uh, scholarship. What do, do we say, hey, I, I want to build, is it build more new institutions or is it invest in ones that exist already? What is, or is it, a, is it a mixture of both? I mean, I, I'm not... 
I guess a part, I guess, well, no, I don't have any relationship to an institution besides the school that I'm, I'm a student at at this point. I mean, and it's a secular university in the UK. And so I'm getting training to become, you know, Lord willing, doing academic scholarship at one point, but I don't have, you know, an institution that's committed to confessional document that's supporting me at this point. I'm supporting myself. So I don't know. That's a roundabout way to asking a question just about how do we continue to promote scholarship uh, and how do we invest in the right sorts of institutions? I guess it, it would become a case by case basis. If you're saying are the institutions present today worthy of investment? Um, each person would have to be convinced in their own mind uh, on a case by case basis. I'm not, I'm not prepared to, to make a list and, and dictate yeah. uh, on that. Um, but ideally, you don't want to start from scratch. You don't want to, if investments have been made, I don't see any reason to ignore them. I would, I would imagine it makes most sense to whatever has been built, build on it if it's worth building on. Um, and in my opinion, there are things to, to build on and invest in. in I, again, I'm thinking in 1689 circles. I'm not, I'm not trying yeah. to speak for all the Baptists, uh, etc. This is just me talking about sort of the world that I inhabit. Uh, so in, in the world you inhabit, just off the top of your head, what kinds of institutions do you think are doing good work that you would say, I think this is something worth um, using, I guess, being a part of? resourcing, those types of things? Well, the two institutions that I am most formally affiliated with, the first one would be the Institute, would be IRBS Theological Seminary, um, where I teach, you know, people won't consider me impartial because my father's the, the president of the school. Uh, and, and I believe that that institution is absolutely worth investing in and, and sending uh, potential ministers to, et cetera. I've, I've also taught at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I've, I've taught a class there, and uh, I've appreciated a lot of the work that, that they do. And so I prefer to speak from personal experience on a question like this. I, I don't yeah. have personal experience with schools beyond that. Um, and so the, those two schools, to me, would be uh, both worthy of, of ongoing investment, you know, and they each kind of have their own way of doing things. Um, I'm hesitant. I'm hesitant to say more because I don't want to sound critical of any particular institution, you know, and, and I don't think that's yeah. what we're trying to do here. Um, but I I think that a school that has good international relations and reach is also very important um, because there are 1689ers in in England and in Australia, and New Zealand, uh, and other parts of the world. Uh, of course, we're limited by language um, to a great degree. So schools, a school with good international reach, I think is very important also. I was going to say, Jesse, from your own Baptistic tradition, what are the institutions that you would say these are places that you should be re investing in? <laughs> um, Welch College, you know, um, that's, that's probably something. <laughs> Um, now here, I mean, I, th I think it's a good example. We um, initially started in training ministers and missionaries and lay people, kind of a traditional Bible college model. 
Um, I think for us, that's extended beyond kind of a Bible college model to um, continuing to train ministers, missionaries, and lay people for the local church, but also taking a more liberal arts approach as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like Sam said, my experience um, has been primarily at Southern and at Welch. And so I, it's kind of hard to, to speak for uh, for other places. But I know for, for my own denomination, uh, this institution has certainly been seminal for um, helping train pastors sent by churches back into the denomination, uh, training missionaries, um, training people who do write systematic theologies and write historical theology and things like that. Um, so, I mean, honestly, I think Welch College, as far as my experience, does a, does a great job at that. I, I couldn't say probably much beyond that. Yeah. I mean, I guess my experience, I went to Southern, had a good experience. I went to Southeastern, had a good experience. I mean, I, I may be a little biased, but I think Southeastern actually has a really solid philosophical theology program. One of the best in Baptistic contexts. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with either Greg Welty or Ross Enman, but Greg Welty, he's a pastor at a local church, uh, went to Westminster, California. Uh, you know, he's he's a 1689 type guy, and he's serious philosopher, studied under Richard Swinburne at Oxford. And I mean, anyone in the philosophical mu- community uh, knows that he is a serious philosopher. And then you have Ross Enman, who's a serious philosopher in his own right. And I mean, he's he's a classical theist defending those types of things. So I think, I mean, if you're interested in what seems to be a growing philosophical theology, uh, I guess, segment of interest, I do think Southeastern is a strong institution on that front. I mean, I know everybody's got their own opinions about overall trajectories or whatever, but irrespective of any of that, I think those two two men are, are churchmen and, and are, are doing really serious high thinking. And so from an institutional standpoint, I think that's, I think that's a a good one. Uh, Jake, Connor, do you have any opinions or thoughts? Well, I have many opinions and thoughts about lots of things, <laughs> but um, I want to make sure they – so the question I've got, we, we were talking about the issues we've had historically. And so the question that I would have is twofold for for Sam on, on these issues is, number one, out of anything in our history, at least from – the stuff that I've read and gleaned from the Philadelphia Baptist Association for its first 100 years, at least, seemed to have done a really good job of being a confessional association that respected its churches, but had real communion and was able to train men were involved in really the, the founding of what it became Brown University planting churches, sending guys out to plant churches, helping churches be organized, and other associations be organized. And so do you think that the Philadelphia Association, at least in its first hundred years, really can serve as a good model for associations to form or current associations today? And to expand off of that, does a lot of this really mean that it's very hard or almost impossible to have a national confessional association does and being confessional Baptist, not, not minimalistic big tent philosophy, but actual confessional subscription. Does that really work at a national level? Cause you mentioned earlier in London, they're very close. They can walk and see each other. 
Um, and especially those you get into America, the ge geography plays a part. We're expanding westward. We're getting more distant. You can't have those ties. So do you think Philadelphia is a good model? And do you think that really it's it's challenging or maybe even impossible to have a national association of confessional Baptists? With regard to the first question on the Philadelphia Association, the truth is I have not studied it closely to any degree to be able to answer your question. So you would be probably more qualified to, to just say that than I would. So I'm going to say, go with Jake on this one. <laughs> if you think it's a good model, uh, then I would listen to your arguments for that because I, I wouldn't have any evidence to, to contradict or controvert. Um, with the the second question, is a national association possible in a, a more full subscription mindset? Um, it, it, it's funny, in 2021, we have more connection over distance with things like Zoom and email and phone calls that were not possible in the 17th century. So that would incline me to say, hey, we can expand the area of an association because of how connected we are. And I can just talk to you. You know, the, Nehemiah Cox and William Kiffin might have to walk to each other. We can just call each other up uh, if we wanted to. So I guess we don't have too many excuses, but you want to see each other face to face. So nationally speaking, I, I think this is an opinion that is constantly moving in my mind. So don't, don't take it too far. I question if a national association would be wise unless it's preceded by local associations that then kind of coalesce. Um, or even potentially build a, a sort of confederation of local associations in some way. I don't think that that's in any way um, prohibited for Baptists. People would say, okay, so you really are Presbyterian. And, and we'd say no, because again, the, the power of the keys is still at the congregational level and only at the congregational level. And so for practical purposes, if local associations formed some sort of union um, – Again, for financial cooperation, perhaps for an institution of some kind, that seems perhaps more realistic to me. Um, maybe that's too bloated with with um, administration, too bloated with what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, organization. You know, maybe that's too complicated. Um, and so maybe a national association is more direct, more simplistic. And and certainly we've had national and local associations independent of each other in the past. We know they don't necessarily conflict. So it is possible. It, it may also work better if if there was a – understand me carefully here – a different confession of faith used that perhaps was not as specific in every point as it is. I'm not saying exchange it for minimalism. I'm just saying does the 1689 confession work functionally speaking, not questioning its truth? Does it work functionally speaking to unite people at the national level? That, that's the question I'm asking. We Is the 1689 good and faithful and biblical? I believe so. But is it functional for a national association? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I, I, I'm not sure. I've, I've seen, I've been in a national association based on it. Um, but that's a question in my mind. If there's certain ex, um, exceptions that people consistently take, or if there are peripheral issues within the confession that cut people off because of full subscription, are we willing to reconsider those and say perhaps we could unite more fully and freely with a somewhat revised or edited version of it? I don't know. That's a big question and beyond the scope, I think, of, of this discussion.
But it, but those things factor into can a, can a national full subscription association work? That's why I'm bringing them up. Yeah. So one thing you've brought up a couple of times is just, I guess, the distinction between a Baptistic congregationalist type polity and the Presbyterian polity. Do, do Presbyterians truly, I mean, I guess depending on what, what it is, I think PCA, maybe OPC, just to be concrete, do they, do their external courts, synods, whatever you want to call them, I don't know what the technical terminology is off the top of my head, do they really have power over the keys such as membership and discipline in local congregations? In because in my mind it seems it's it it can be almost you got I mean we could come to a meeting place where we could have a committed presbyterian who could have the same exact polity as a committed congregationalist one just wants to call it by different terminology though functionally they're still doing the same thing saying the local church has the power of the keys the power of ordination those types of things though we just want to have an external body and a, a, an external process that you have to go through to be a part of our denomination? Mm-hmm. That, that's a really interesting question, um, because the modern American Presbyterianism is a lot more Baptistic Congregationalist than it is Presbyterian in cases. You know, we're generalizing here. We are generalizing. But it, it's my understanding that in OPC, PCA churches, and other similar ones, general assemblies especially, uh, still maintain considerable ecclesial- ecclesiastical power. Uh, in terms of the keys of the kingdom. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that um, presbyteries, which are larger than the session of elders of a church, presbyteries ordain ministers. I I believe, I'm not an expert on PCA, OPC ecclesiology, but I I believe that at the presbytery level, ordination happens. Uh, The installation of a pastor in a particular church, congregations do have a right of refusal. They can select their own own ministers. Um, But if you go back to the 17th century, the the Presbyterians of different flavors, whether it's ground up or, or top down authority, Presbyterians said to the Congregationalists, who Congregationalists who affirmed synods or general assemblies of associations or consociations, Presbyterians said, if you give them not the keys to this larger thing, if you give them not the keys, you give them nothing. So for a Presbyterian, they said, no, the higher entity has to have the keys. Or else it's it, it is nothing. It has nothing. It can't do anything. Um, so for a Presbyterian from the 17th century, the idea that a that a higher church court would have no authority over the churches over which it has jurisdiction would just be a complete contradiction in terms. Like it's not Presbyterianism at that point. Now, to yeah. what degree does the OPC or the PCA fit into this question or criticism? I don't have sufficient knowledge to to declare that. But I I am I feel very confident stating, maybe be wrong, that they must have ecclesiastical authority in their presbytery, and especially in the GA. The GA should have the the highest say in such things um, for determining matters of faith and practice. But we'd we'd have to ask a Presbyterian for those specifics. Yeah. I mean, I think, if I remember correctly, that ministers actually aren't members of their own local churches. They're actually a member of the session or whatever it is. So you're probably right on that. But it it seemed to me as the way modern Presbyterians explain their polity, I mean, functionally Baptists can do almost all the big things that they are promoting. You know, this just associational unity, this, you know, you know, assisting each other in important difficult matters of whether it's doctrine or just 
you know, actual local church, hey, I've got a problem, I need help. It seems like Baptists could functionally do the same thing uh, to a large extent that a Presbyterian could. So their argument for, well, my polity is better than yours, seems to me not a great argument. Maybe maybe it's a good argument because Baptists just have been so disassociated, so individualistic that we've lost those capacities um, and those types of positive benefits of associating with one another. So, Connor, Jake, Jesse, any any other closing thoughts, ideas, questions that you wanted to ask, Sam? Well, uh, Jake kind of asked the question that I was um, going to, uh, the, you know, can a Baptist association, a confessional association work on the national level, and how would that look? Um, I, I wonder if if anybody on, on the uh, recording here... Um, if, if they would have an idea or a forecast of, of what Baptist associationalism um, would look like in the future, um, just kind of seeing where we've been, seeing where we are, and kind of what could we predict for the future. Um, and I think, Sam, you, you've, you've alluded to what would be helpful, uh, but I, I wonder if you could take a stab at what you might expect. Um, and th- this question might be coming off the heels of, you know, we just saw, was it last week, the SBC? And, you know, there's there's a lot of questions of the future of that convention and how, quote-unquote, divided it is, uh, et cetera. And, um, you know, to, to Jake's point, can a national association work? And, you know, we're kind of seeing those things play out, and I wonder if anybody has... Um, predictions on what what might happen uh, here in our neck of the woods in the west of 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 these things playing out so I know that might be a really um loaded question and hard to answer but um that's why we brought you on sam so uh <laughs> if you want to take a stab or if jake you want to take anybody can take a stab i'm just curious what you guys um would would say to that my my quick answer would be I believe it will depend on doctrinal unity, at least first. Right now, we have been seeing in confessional Presbyterian circles, as well as confessional Baptist circles, as well as other circles, debate and difference over the doctrine of God. And to me, as I look at things in the circles that I inhabit, that's going to be a non-negotiable Um Classical theism uh, must be preserved and must be a a distinguishing identifier. Now, to what degree, to what extent would be a separate question, but I think that that will likely be what would give a, a level one unity. You know, okay, Orthodox Trinitarianism, Orthodox essence and attributes, of God start here. (laughs) Uh, I think that will be the issue that will divide or unite people moving forward. Um, And to some degree, I think it should be. But each age has to face its own, we think this or that is is more or less important. Um, I I hope you understand what, what I'm saying by that. You know, if you just say 1689 will be the source of our unity, well, 
1689ers have have divided over over doctrine of God issues, and and so there has to be. Okay, I'll, I'll transition and say another thing that I think will affect future unity and future endeavors is going to be how diligent are we in rereading and studying the 16th and 17th century sources. Um, Reformed Presbyterians have a much better body of literature, historically speaking, of historical theology for their own theology, writing about their confession and things like that. We need to do a better job of that as 1689ers. But the one of the differences is that, again, because of institutional lack of institutions and such things, access to the historical sources is a fairly modern phenomenon. Uh, it's really only in the past... 20 years that we can, that we can have the unprecedented access that we do have to particular baptist literature reformed literature of the 16th and 17th centuries and so to from my perspective i want to see more and more people investing themselves in the historical sources of the 16th and 17th century um, and then being and then convinced by those arguments one way or another uh, advancing to a confessional unity wherever people end up, because I find that most many of the modern debates unhelpful. Uh, if you try to navigate a doctrine of God debate with just modern characters and and categories, it, it doesn't. I don't think it ends anywhere. But if you use 16th and 17th century uh, scholastic Reformed theology, Protestant theology, not necessarily Reformed but Protestant theology. Uh, I think it gives you the categories to work within a confessional context. Now, that's a big ask. Like, okay, everybody, read the 16th and 17th century literature and see where we all end up. <laughs> you know, like, what are you talking about? But I've, I also kind of find it unavoidable. You know, otherwise we're just going to repeat the same unending and endless uh, debates of our day. So that's probably not a very good answer, Connor, but I think Doctrine of God is going to be a big one, and I think there needs to be a more robust, um, not not even necessarily recovery, but at least reconsideration, um, re-engagement of older literature to see where did these arguments actually come from? Because a lot of people come to Reformed theology and they think it's Calvinism, um, and there's so much more than that. And and the confessions are icebergs. You know, these are the confessions are the conclusions, the summary conclusions. So how can we argue about the summary conclusions if we're not investing in the iceberg of, of theological literature that is the 16th and 17th century that produces these summary conclusions in the confession? So to try to sum that up in maybe a clearer way, I will. I I don't see it as working very well to to, to promote future confessionalism based on older documents without also investing in the literature behind those documents uh, that, that led to them. Uh, so that's why in my own personal writing and publishing, I have really enjoyed doing things like a reader, a reader on divine impassibility, or on the doctrine of Christ's descent, one half exegetical argument, one half a reader. Because I know not everyone can get on Ebo and Echo and PRDL and read those things. So I want to put them all in a document and say, here, I, I gave you the book. You just have to read it. If you're convinced, you're convinced. You know, you think about it, but let me put the resources in your hand. 
so I, I want to see more people doing that kind of work to, to make it easier for people. They can't all track down the resources all the time. But I think especially those who are training for ministry need to start thinking in that way, okay? I can read older sources. They're there. I need to spend the time, and some authors may give them to you in an easier-to-digest format. So there needs to be a more historical knowledge in order to confess historical confessions. And I think doctrine, when you do that, doctrine of God is going to be more clearly a, an issue with, with some groups. That's, that's what I think. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Thanks. Helpful. Yeah. Any any closing thoughts, Jesse, that you wanted to add? Um, no, not not much really. I mean, I love Sam's idea of putting together a reader. I'm hopefully going to be teaching um, a Baptist ecclesiology class for our MDiv program, and that's one of the things I'm I, I'm really interested in and excited about. And I think you're you're spot on is getting those sources in people's hands. Yeah, not everybody has access to Ebo and Echo. And I think I've lost access to those through Southern. Oh, so if you all know how to help me recover my access here. No, but uh, I think that's I think that's great. Um, and I think that's 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 spot on. You know, one of the things you said earlier about associationalism and maybe differences between Presbyterianism and for Baptists. One of the things that we do in my own denomination, which I think is helpful, is we do bring in local pastors in a given association and they are involved in the ordination process in the sense that, and it varies from place to place, but a church will um, um, basically set aside a person for, to be ordained as a minister. They will be sent to a presbytery that has been chosen by the association uh, and that person will be examined theologically and then <clears throat> either sent back with approval or um, sent back with a rec another recommendation. So the, like you said earlier, the power of ordination still lies within the congregation, but it's a way of an incorporating the association into the process as well. Um, so, so just sort of in line with the whole conversation we had, I think these are the types of things that we can be doing where we still are maintaining a Baptist ecclesiology, but have a have very strong associational ties. Yeah, that's good. I, I mean, I've always thought having some sort of you know informal association of ministers to help determine if somebody's actually qualified is a good thing, a positive thing. Um, they don't have to have final authority in your local church saying, "Yeah, I, I want this pastor," but it seems that that's just a wise thing to do. Because uh, at least in my own context, there's been a lot of pastors who are unqualified, who are becoming pastors for unqualified for all sorts of reasons. And it would be helpful to have other ministers who, in in one sense, they have nothing to lose, but in another sense, they do have something to lose because they're concerned about the continuance of the gospel and healthy churches and et cetera. But they don't have anything to lose because, well, you know, it's it's they're not going to be the ones getting the angry emails from the parishioners. And so it, it kind of helps them to be able to take an, a little bit more of an unbiased look at this man to say, is this person actually qualified based on the scriptures? And giving some sort of informal recommendation seems like a positive way associations could help grow healthy churches and uh, help 
um, encourage ministers to be serious about their task and as serious about their qualifications and not just assume, well, you know, Aunt Mama loves me at my church and therefore I'm going to get in no matter what. It, you know, somebody in your local church, you've, you've got good connections, networking or whatever. They're going to they're going to say, yeah, you be our pastor and irrelevant regardless from the qualification. So it seems that having some sort of external body that can give recommendations would be a positive thing. I mean, is that, am I off base in thinking that? I think that's a common practice for an ordination council to be called by a local church, you know, in in one way or another, the way that that Jesse was mentioning it, or as I've seen in our local churches, uh, an ordination council made up of a variety of churches, elders, uh, is certainly very common, and then, but ultimately, it's the local church that that ordains them, and and for 1689ers, um, the local church has to ordain them. Um, it, it can't be any other way, and it it comes down to a difference of of interpretation of Acts 14:23, and Paul overseeing the ordination of of elders. And if you look at the Geneva Bible versus uh, the King James Bible, they're, they're very different on that passage. The Geneva Bible says that they ordained elders by lifting their hands, and then King James says that Paul ordained elders in every city. Uh, and so the particular Baptists took the Geneva Bible reading, whereas Westminster Presbyterians took the King James reading because they differed in opinion over that verse, but that, that's another story. Awesome. Well, this has been fun, uh, I think, and hopefully encouraging and edifying to you all. As a reminder, we've got Jake Stone, Connor McMakin, Sam Renahan, and Jesse Owens, who, Jesse, we need to get him on to talk about the Salters Hall controversy at some point in the future for all you listeners. Uh, I think that's something that I am really looking forward to learning about. So in due time, we will have to chat with Jesse about that as well. So hopefully you all enjoyed this conversation and we can further strengthen uh, Baptistic congregationalists, as Matthew Bingham would say. Um, Just, you know, I I mean, just healthy churches in general. I think all of us are in agreement that no matter your denominational affiliation, uh, healthy, more healthy churches, stronger churches, more uh, trained, serious, you know, theological scholarship is a good thing. Uh, Whatever your theological persuasion, whether you're uh, Presbyterian who listens or, or something else because I know we've got a, a good range of listeners from different denominational backgrounds, Anglican, Anglicans etc. So we want healthy churches across the board who are thinking and doing good scholarship so hopefully this is encouraging to you as well and to all who are listening we thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.